This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Dan Roberts, thanks very much for uh, for coming on Talk Your Book. It's a, a bit of a special edition for Talk Your Book. Um, we don't have a lot of actual company executives, but really excited to sit down and talk to you. Maybe before we get into Iris Energy, if you could start with just a little bit about your background and, and how you came to, to founding what may going to be the world's largest Bitcoin miner. Yeah, sure thing, Juddy. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I guess my background, and chat about my, uh, my brother and co-founder, Will, as well. I started life at PwC, um, then worked at Macquarie across Sydney, and London, um, doing a lot of infrastructure, renewable energy development projects. Um, and then about 10 years ago, joined an infrastructure funds management business in Sydney called Palisade. And really, it was right place, right time. We had an extraordinary period of growth, um, grew to about 8 billion in assets, um, ports, airports, wind farms, solar farms, etc. Um, got to mid-2018, um, stepped back from my executive role there, um, and basically started looking at, at additional growth businesses. In parallel, my brother and co-founder, Will, he was at Macquarie for about seven or eight years doing structured products into traditional mining businesses, uh, gold, copper, iron ore, et cetera. And for the last year he was at Macquarie, he was um, actually involved in helping set up their digital asset team. So looking at things like Bitcoin on the CME futures, investing in Bitcoin mining, and then it got to mid-2018, and it's probably not unfair to say that Macquarie's appetite probably started to cool with the broader market at that time. So he jumped out, we teamed up, and that was the, uh, the genesis of Iris Energy and, and how he came to be. And I won't get you to go into the, the idea around Bitcoin because it's, there's so much content around that already, but there'll be a lot of people that are still largely unfamiliar with Bitcoin mining and, and what that process entails maybe could you give us the, the helicopter view of what bitcoin mining is for someone that's had limited exposure to that as a uh, as a concept yeah sure thing and look to be frank it took us a little bit of while to uh, to understand it as well but when you strip it back it's actually quite simple um the analogy that i use is if you go to the casino and the dealer puts it and everyone loves this analogy but the dealer puts a pile of chips in the middle of the table and says first person to roll two sixes wins a pile of chips all Bitcoin mining is, is effectively that on a digital scale, where every 10 minutes, the protocol generates a random number. All these computers around the world use trial and error brute force to guess that random number. There is no edge. Like the first computer to guess it wins a few hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. So the more computers you have, the more Bitcoin you will receive. So if you've got 1% of the global computing power securing this network or the global hash rate, on average, you'll find one out of 100 blocks and receive the reward. Now, in practice, what people do is they aggregate their computing power with others. So we're part of a mining pool that controls around 15, 20% of the global network. So they use all that computing power and then they find that Bitcoin block directly once every hour or so and then allocate the Bitcoin on a proportionate basis to all the contributors to that mining pool. In fact, it gets better Basically, because the law of large numbers means that it's entirely predictable for them, they guarantee us a fixed daily payout. So every morning, our CFO gets into work, 
logs into our regulated exchange account, the expected number of Bitcoin sitting there, uh, directly corresponding with the amount of computing power we've generated the previous day. We, uh, we click sell, sell it for cash, withdraw it to our bank account, pay the power bill at the end of the month, pocket the rest as profit. Like that is it. That is the simplicity and the entirety of the business model. We don't hold Bitcoin. We don't speculate directly on the price of it. Um, and we certainly don't touch anything else, crypto or, or blockchain related. It's a daily cash flow monetization process. And so that's what the commercial business model looks like to you. But what importance does that mining process play for the overall Bitcoin protocol? And, and why is it so important? And, and just how secure is it when you compare to um, other monetary networks? That's a really good question. Um, so Bitcoin mining is essentially... Um, the process of tethering the real world to the digital world. So to unpack that, you've got this, this digital internet money, right? And like everyone's had their own experiences and view and you kind of awaken to it at whatever point you say, hang on, how can this internet money have any sort of tangibility or anchor into the real world? Like why can't people produce more of it? Like how secure is it, et cetera? The whole mining process or proof of work is all about that tethering process, anchoring that digital asset to the real world. And the way that happens specifically is every 10 minutes, there is an amount of energy and real world expense spent to get a piece of that Bitcoin, right? And that process is what secures the blockchain because people buy Bitcoin for its characteristics, right? Like if you step back, it's been a finished product for 10 years and it's one of those aspects or inventions that we can't unwind, right? Like it's one of the humanity's first inventions that it's now out in the wild. It is what it is. And you kind of cross that Rubicon at a certain point. You say the game theory, the incentive structure, it is there. And the mining process is the way of securing those valuable elements of the market values, censorship resistance, immutability. You can't tamper with this blockchain. It is literally embedded in concrete uh, energized concrete through this 10-minute process where every 10 minutes this proof of work and this energy expenditure through the mining process is layering down that blockchain underneath all this energy um, to ensure that you can't tamper with it and you can't um, co-opt the blockchain and that it remains at 21 million and people's savings are secure. So that mining process is absolutely fundamental. Like it, it is part of it is one of the key innovations that led to this entire crypto ecosystem and is what underwrites a huge amount of the value proposition um, in Bitcoin. Um, so I think it's really important for people to understand that it, there's a lot of other consensus mechanisms that, that people talk about proof of stake or whatnot, but proof of work is fundamental to the value proposition of Bitcoin, which is that digital savings view. That's right. And so it's Bitcoin, the protocol is almost a group of rules which have been created and miners like you are essentially enforcing that those rules are being adhered to. And I, I guess it's almost, well, maybe that's as simple as it seems like to me. And a lot of people say, well, why is that important? And I guess governments all around the world are announcing rules and promises every day. And, um, and we know by looking around that those rules aren't always adhered to and they're much more malleable than perhaps people would often like them to be. And, and is it fair to say that's where a lot of people view the underlying value in, in Bitcoin to be? Yeah, I think that's right. Like, I think the value of an uncorrelated digital asset 
where no individual or group of individuals can exert any control. Um, I think it's taking on, well, it's clearly taking on increasing interest and adoption um, as a result of those characteristics. Like every other asset, you, you kind of, you're anchored to real world, um, you know, your properties, you're subject to taxes and different rules around how you own those properties. Um, other assets are subject to um, changes in supply, you know, whether it's the amount of Australian dollars on issue, the amount of US dollars on issue in the period of quantitative easing, um, whether it's the amount of gold that exists, right? Like typically gold is quite stable. There's only 1.8% year-on-year inflation, but it is 1.8% year-on-year, which goes exponential when you look at the chart. In parallel, in, in contrast, I should say, Bitcoin's got a supply cap. There is only 21 million. No one can change that. And it's clear that I think a greater and greater proportion of the world is seeing that um, as a secure savings vehicle, a way to park their wealth and know that nothing's going to happen to it. And I think it goes back to that, the heart of, I think once you cross that step and say Bitcoin's here to stay, you then say, well, hang on, with its increasing scarcity characteristics every four years up until that ultimate cap of 21 million, how does this not create this positive flywheel around the store of value narrative where the longer it survives, the more secure it's perceived to be, which encourages more people to put more money into it, which makes the price go incrementally higher because there is no supply response, which then drives another cohort of people to look at it. And it becomes a really fascinating, almost game theoretic construct. And then you overlay the real world and quantitative easing and low interest rates in this 50 year period we've been through since 1971. And it's it's gonna be a very interesting five, 10 years ahead, I suspect. And talk to me about the energy usage of maintaining that Bitcoin network that the Bitcoin miners use, because I think this would blow people's minds who, who are unfamiliar with the space. Just how much of the world's energy, say as a percentage, is used for Bitcoin mining? Yeah, I'm not sure what the percentage was, but to use is, but to use some analogies, and, th- and this goes to the heart of what the macro opportunity for investing in Bitcoin mining is, and it's it's you've basically got to try and scale these real world inputs in line with an exponential digital and social network. Like go back 10 years and then picture what Amazon was like or Google or Facebook. You've got these digital and social networks that are disrupting their physical equivalents, right? And you've got gold 2.0, product market fit. Bitcoin's been a finished product for 10 years. It's still 5% of the market cap of gold. It's like Amazon being 5% of the market cap of retail or YouTube being 5% of the market cap of Blockbuster. So I guess the asymmetry in that as an asset um, is extraordinary in itself. But, but what you've got when, when you've got, as a miner, your revenue line is essentially the price of Bitcoin, right? That exponential technology. Price moves in a non-linear fashion, goes on these parabolic adoption waves. Your ability to monetize it, though, is all about these real-world inputs. And we refer to this triple M construct. You need money, you need miners, and you need megawatts. So money is capital, miners are the computers, and megawatts is power. Back when the world, say, was dedicating 20 megawatts or 100 megawatts towards securing this network, and Bitcoin goes on one of its parabolic runs, goes up 5, 10x, the world can scramble. It can find a few hundred megawatts worth of power, chips, capital, and allow the real world to scale exponentially in tandem with an exponential digital asset. But as the exponential digital asset gets bigger, your ability to scale the real world exponentially mm. gets obviously challenging. The laws of physics more than anything else. So you fast forward to today, late last year, we had something like eight gigawatts 
of power servicing this network. The price rally is 5x from 12 to 60 grand. It's a completely different paradigm. All of a sudden, to try and normalise mining yields, you now need 30 gigawatts of power. The entire global data centre industry, I think, is only 23 gigawatts. You need $70 billion of capital in a sector where, as we know, institutions are they're certainly starting to learn very fast what it's about, but there hasn't been a large involvement to date. And I think the sum total of listed minor capital raisings in the last 12 months is $2 billion. And then finally, even if you solve that, you're then going to wait four to five years of full manufacturing production of these specialised chips out of China in the middle of a global semiconductor shortage where people literally can't build cars because they can't get the chips. So it creates this, like, fascinating conundrum where you've got a revenue line being the price of Bitcoin unconstrained by these real world challenges. And then if you want a piece of that digital exponential pie every 10 minutes, you've got that real world triple M construct, uh, let alone all the social ESG overlay to, um, to try and get a piece of it. So it's, it's a fascinating dynamic. And, and as a result of what Bitcoin's done over the last six to nine months, we've certainly crossed that inflection point. And so in terms of comparing you to, say, real-world miners, if you like, that there's a huge desire for real-world miners to be in that lowest quartile cost of production because it ensures them when, when prices drop, your biggest, uh, your biggest expense is, is energy. How have you gone about securing really low-cost energy and um, renewable energy too, to ensure yourself against some of the ESG challenges that Bitcoin miners are already facing and are going to continue to face and to ensure that you are in, you know, a lowest, as, as low a cost producer of Bitcoin as you can be? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, um, and I'd argue there's two limbs to that, which is what you've alluded to. There's the ESG side of things, the social license to operate, um, as well as being a low cost producer and ensuring that, you know, the bottom line is looked after for shareholders. And I think they both converge on, on the same thing, which is a strategy around targeting low-cost excess renewables. I think most people will be aware that the marginal cost of renewables is essentially the cheapest power. Uh, there's no fuel inputs. There's no exposure to commodity price inflation. There's no exposure to carbon taxes. Um, equally, capital is cheaper, undoubtedly, when you're pursuing renewables, ESG, type businesses. I think we're all broadly familiar with the challenges for fossil fuel industries in raising capital and the cost of debt and equity, et cetera. So it all converges around a very obvious strategy in our minds, which is to target that low cost excess renewables. And then also overlay an additional, um, I, I guess, objective, which is to enter markets where the load you're bringing and your energy consumption is solving other problems beyond just using excess renewables. So in markets like British Columbia, where we have a number of projects, um, that market's, I think it's 97 or 98% hydro, um, but they've got a, a really large oversupply of it. They're still building large-scale hydro in the north of the province in the face of declining manufacturing and industrial demand. Like the whole pulp and paper industry is closed down. And the challenge in a regulated market is if they have an oversupply of power, counterintuitively, power prices go up hmm. because under the regulated model, the utility is allowed to increase power prices to a level sufficient to allow them to recover their regulated return on investment. So we come into a market, we use the load, we use the energy, we mop up that surplus hydro, and as a result, pay a power bill to avoid mums and dads having to pay it to the utility 
instead. For people maybe unfamiliar with it, you lose a lot of electricity as electricity travels. So if that power is being produced not near industry or large numbers of people, it's not as simple to just say, we'll transport it to where there are industries or people, is it? Because the power then loses as it, as it travels along those lines. Absolutely. And you've got loss factors, but in addition, you've got transmission line constraints, right? Particularly in this new world of energy transition away from the more centralised fossil fuel generators where you've got energy networks and transmission lines that were built for the old world. You know, these mm. large multi-gigawatt um, powered stations where it's more moving towards a distributor model where you've got wind and solar and scattered around and the transmission lines need to be upgraded. There, there's excess capacity on some lines. There's overcapacity on other lines. And I guess part of the advantage that we have as a power user is we're geographically flexible. We can go and locate wherever that power is. We don't need the power to come to us. We don't need high-speed broadband. We can operate on a satellite or a 4G network. So not only can we avoid and solve for transmission line constraints, we can also solve for part of the challenges around intermittent renewables, time of day production, i.e. when the wind blows, the sun shines, there's lots of power, but when it stops, you know, there's not enough power and power prices go through the roof. The benefit of these facilities is that they're the perfect flexible load demand response. There's no customer contracts, no uptime guarantees, no consequential loss. While the chips are operating, they're generating Bitcoin, we liquidate. While they're off, they're not. So we're negotiating a contract at the moment with a utility where they can turn down our power consumption for multiple four-hour periods each year by 75%. They put their notice in. We remotely throttle down the frequency of these chips, dynamically adjust our energy consumption because the market wants it, mums and dads need power, other industry needs the power. Four hours later, we throttle it back up when the clouds part and the solar, I'm using some, um, some analogies just to highlight how real it is, throttle the frequency back up, use more energy and dynamically adjust our energy consumption based on market conditions. So they are a really helpful product in terms of providing that demand side battery and flexibility and load to allow increased and ongoing penetration of renewables in these markets. And in a counterintuitive way, even though Bitcoin does use a lot of energy, you could see a lot of these renewable projects become much more economic because of these sorts of partnerships. Is that fair? 100%. I mean, you're providing a base power price, underwriting um, a price for energy. And it goes even deeper than that because what you've seen in a lot of markets globally, and Australia is no exception, is you get to a point where policy encourages a level of renewable build-out. But the lack of ability to size solve that time of day issue around the intermittent generation of renewables and oversupply, undersupply, um, means that there's a lack of a price signal to build out more renewables because the economics don't make sense. And equally, you can't retire the residual fossil fuel generators because you need that power because there's not enough power. So the proposition of rolling out large-scale data centres, whether it's doing Bitcoin mining that we're doing today or high-performance computing and other applications we're looking at, is the nature of us being able to bring load and bring flexible load and provide that price signal to even build out more renewables, it basically avoids the taxpayer or mums and dads having to pay the incentives to build out renewables, transition more towards greater penetration of renewables in the energy mix and ultimately allow you to retire these fossil fuel generators that are providing that baseload power because all of a sudden you've solved the need for baseload in your demand mix by having flexible users in there. 
So outside of energy, where it looks like you've got an advantage from securing low-cost energy production, but also that energy being being green, if you like, and more acceptable to be used by the ESG community. Talk to me about the hardware component. Is there any advantage you can have there or is it just uniform across all miners in terms of what hardware they use? Yeah, it's a really good question. And the industry's changed really rapidly over the last 10 years. So if you look at the history of mining in terms of the hardware, it started off very early with hobbyists and enthusiasts mining on their laptops and computers solving these blocks, getting 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. It'd be great to have a time machine. And then over time, people realized, well, hang on, I can reprogram my graphics card, run this random number generator, the SHA-256 algorithm, faster, more efficiently, have an edge, get more Bitcoin. And then around 2014, the market and these Chinese manufacturers developed ASICs, application-specific integrated circuits, whose sole purpose in life was to crunch this SHA-256 algorithm. And to be honest, from that point, they held the competitive advantage because they had access to the latest technology. So anecdotally, they'd mine on their own balance sheets. Six months later, develop a more efficient chip, sell the old stuff to the general public, rinse and repeat. So as the average participant in the market, it was really hard to compete with someone who was always a generation ahead on the technology um, what you could see coming, though, was this commoditization story. So you could see that the hardware and the computers were going the way of every other electronic hardware industry. So you look at things like LCD TVs, laptops, computers. We saw it firsthand with solar panels. You race down this tech curve, it becomes commoditized. Everything um, becomes very accessible to everyone. And a large reason for that was very quickly these manufacturers were approaching the efficiency of traditional computing. So these step changes in efficiency uh, were, were slowing down. Fast forward to today, they've now caught them. So the Bitcoin mining manufacturers are now competing with the likes of Google and Amazon and Apple to try and get these seven five nanometer wafers out of TSMC and Samsung. So all of a sudden, it's a level playing field. Everyone's got access to the same technology. These manufacturers are less focused on mining on their own balance sheets, they've become more of manufacturing third-party sales. So what that's done is kind of flip competitive advantage on its head in the sector where going forward, it's all about the energy, the infrastructure, building large-scale data centre infrastructure operations and accessing institutional capital markets to build out businesses, going back to some of the earlier points, of seriously incredible scale going forward. And whilst maybe not an, an advantage in the types of equipment, there's been a, a challenge to get security of supply of a lot of that hardware during these supply shortages. How have you, have you managed to, to travel that road in the last year or so, trying to uh, upgrade your compute equipment? Yeah, look, it's, um, it's been a challenge, right? Like as I alluded to before, people literally can't build cars because they can't get their mm. semiconductors. Um, so look, we, we've got some very large capacity orders. We've had a lot of luck um, with the manufacturers. But we're having to wait 18 months, two years and getting our orders spread in monthly instalments to get access to that capacity. And look, if I'm uh, frank, it's been a challenge, you know, two Aussie brothers um, out of Sydney saying, hey, listen to us. We're, um, we're trying to grow. We'll, we'll, be, um, we'll be big one day. And, you know, that we've done a lot of work. I think that they've also bought into the ESG, the sustainability story, the institutional grade platform that we're building. We've now got 40 people across North America 
and Australia, you know, ex-Macquarie bankers, renewable energy developers, engineers. So certainly the size and scale of our business has transformed uh, enormously uh, over the last year or two. And um, that certainly helped. But yeah, look, it, it is a real challenge for the industry, but it's also the opportunity in a way, because the challenge is it's hard to get those chips. The opportunity is it's hard for anyone else to get them. And if you've mm. got them, then you're maintaining a really high proportion of that digital exponential pie every 10 minutes that um, is generated through that Bitcoin mining process. And so I was looking at Iris, I was sort of thinking about in 1883, seven blokes founded BHP and BHP didn't mean revert because the quality of their different deposits was just so superior to many different mining companies that came after them. When you look at Iris Energy, which is a, a new mining company, much like BHP was in 1883, the chip issue will mean revert. Like there will be more chips produced in years to come and that supply shortage will eventually resolve itself. I would think, is that a fair assumption to make? It's really hard to know um, because it, it, it comes down to, well, what's the price of Bitcoin? So if Bitcoin hovers around 40,000, 50,000 a coin, then yes, over the space of you know, three, four, five years, you will get enough chips. Um, and then you say, well, if Bitcoin goes up, if the economic incentive goes up to develop more chips, then is the world going to produce more chips? You know, ordinarily, you'd say, yeah, I mean, markets are efficient. There's a supply mm. response. And I'm inclined to agree with that. But you then keep encountering these real world issues where you've got an exponential digital and social network mm. and the ability to scale these multi-billion dollar fab shops and produce more chips and or try and suck the chips away from traditional industries and build less cars next year because the Bitcoin miners have sucked them all away. So it's, it, it encounters this really weird dynamic around social license to operate and social acceptance of, uh, of what you're doing. So, and then you've got the energy consumption on top of that as well. You say, well, even if you can build all the chips, where do you find these gigawatts, tens of gigawatts yeah. of power? It's a, it's a real challenge. So that's the one to me where it felt like the economic moat may really live for iris is the fact that it has secured so much renewable energy that can be used at a at a low cost but it sounds like you feel there may be an economic moat from both both angles undoubtedly in the short to medium term there is a moat on both angles like without a shadow of a doubt if you forecast out five seven years let's play out a, a world where there's unconstrained chips chips for everyone semiconductors flying around and tsmc's build you know, built multiple foundries in North America, et cetera, then yes, you can't innovate your way out of proof of work. You still need that energy expenditure. And, and maybe to articulate that <clears throat> in a slightly different way, um, just to give people more context is every 10 minutes, you've got this bounty available for Bitcoin miners, right? Which is the amount of Bitcoin multiplied by the price of Bitcoin. Now, as, the pro as that bounty grows, either because the price of Bitcoin goes up or it stays where it is today, the economic incentive is such that the world is incentivized to spend an amount of electricity or OPEX to get access to that revenue line every 10 minutes. So the higher Bitcoin goes, higher the bounty, the more incentive there is to spend money. Now, you can't innovate your way out of that um, economic incentive, right? You need to keep spending money on electricity to get access mm. to that revenue line. So to your point, like, where do you get all these gigawatts of power and like we've modeled out like even based on iea forecast for new build renewables even if you assume bitcoin miners 
start using 10 times more marginal power than what they've ever used before, very quickly, there's not enough power over the next four to five years to service this industry. So one of the things that we're looking at in this platform is, particularly given the experience of a lot of the members in the team, is actually developing, building and owning our own renewable energy generation assets over time. So owning the solar, owning the wind, owning the hydro. And I think even entertaining, moving potentially to a net positive construct where all of a sudden we're producing more power than what we're consuming behind the meter for our data center activities. Um, that completely helps with the social license to operate and you know, a narrative around taking power away from mums and dads, et cetera, or you know, Elon Musk thinking that Bitcoin uses too much energy. If you're producing your own, it, it certainly helps that. It also helps with the profitability side of our business for two reasons. One, you can start almost arbitrating Bitcoin mining profitability and power price peaks and troughs a lot like some of the traditional commodity houses do, like Glencore, trading across energy markets, electricity, commodities, et cetera. But it also then, to your cost of power point from earlier, drops you to absolute rock bottom of the global cost curve because all of a sudden at that point, your marginal cost of production is that of marginal cost renewables, i.e. close to zero. And in the middle of a, a capital raising Currently, what sort of capacity are you going to be able to build out once that capital raising complete in terms of gigawatts and, and compute power as well? Yeah, I'll, I'll decline a comment specifically on any potential capital raising um, at the moment. Um, but in terms of our business and, and what we're building, we have secured um, you know, 15 exahash of global capacity. Um, to be delivered over the next 18 to 24 months. You know, by way of comparison, um, 15 exahash would represent around 10 to 15% of the, the global network today. So it, it is a large number. Um, you do need to raise capital to build that out through you know, debt, equity, uh, reinvestment of operating cash flow. Um, it's equivalent to about half a gigawatt of power. Um, so we've got sites globally now, um, several in British Columbia, Texas, one in Asia Pacific, we're looking at a couple in Europe. It certainly has turned very quickly into a, um, a global platform where we continue to look globally at markets that have got low cost excess power, that have got great challenges around transmission line constraints and opportunities to come in there and, and obviously use power and, and make money, but also solve problems at a, at a more micro level as well. And what will be your optimum funding mix, if you like, for that going forward? Will you, will you fund future growth out of debt? Will it be more equity? Will it be cash flow? I'm assuming it will probably be a combination of all three. How are you looking at, at that funding mix going forward? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and the capital structure options for this business um, are really exciting. And when, when you've got such a profitable underlying business that's generating all this daily cash flow, I, I guess the, the finance guys in us can't help to think, well, what can you do with that from a capital structure perspective? So I think it's fair to say that our need to raise um, equity, um, you know, beyond what, what might occur over the course of the next few months um, is going to be, we're not going to need to do it. Um, because you've got such significant operating cash flow. Now, whether you're reinvesting that cash flow directly, and, and I think we'll look to potentially pay distributions at some point in time as well, um, or using it to, to secure debt products. So 
we've already looked at a number of, of debt products. There's about half a dozen um, uh, groups in this industry or funds slash institutions who provide hardware financing solutions. So essentially limited recourse finance where it's secured against the individual computers mm. themselves. So uh, we, we've, uh, I think this is publicly on the record, we've signed up about $50 million of that to date. Um, and look, from an issuer, it's a really attractive product because it's limited recourse and you know, accretive to our capital structure mix. But over time, what, what you're going to see is the capital structure evolve substantially because today mining revenues are quite volatile right? Because the price of Bitcoin is going up and down. And, but what we're starting to see is the emergence of a really deep pool of derivative contracts. Um, so whether it's put calls and entering into straddles or whether it's just forward selling the Bitcoin. And I think if you fast forward where this industry goes over the next five to seven years, ultimately we'll be able to enter into swap contracts with investment grade counterparties and start hedging out a lot of, if not all of that revenue line and volatility to third parties, much like you would in traditional energy projects where you'd enter into a long-term PPA or an offtake contract. And I think for us, you know, we're very comfortable with exposure to Bitcoin, but equally, if you can smooth out some of the volatility of that revenue line, you then potentially looking at a re-rating of this closer to traditional infrastructure and real asset platforms, right? Investment grade revenue line, expense line, which is power, real asset base generating that revenue line, then there's no reason why you start don't start looking at more traditional project financing type structures with a very different cost of capital attached to it. Yeah, your ability to secure debt with that sort of a business model is just goes through the roof, I assume, in the current climate. In terms of dividends, I, I, it's been reported that there's a, a NASDAQ listing hopeful in the last quarter of this year. I assume you'll decline a comment on that. Am I right there? I think I'm allowed to say that we've confidentially filed our F1 with the SEC. Doesn't get, sound all that confidential once you say it publicly. I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a nitpicker, Dan. That's just my <laughs> just my gut feel. I have had that comment a few times. <laughs> yeah. um, but so how, how far away, if, if that were to go to plan, I know you can't give any concrete dates or numbers, but how far down the track do you foresee before you can start to entertain dividend policy with a, a business like this? Yeah, look, I think we'd be looking to do it um, in the in the shorter term rather than the longer term. That's probably the, uh, the most appropriate response at this point in time. And in terms of staying green, currently 100% of your energy comes from renewable green energy sources. Is there the potential down the track to use more traditional energy and buy carbon credits? Um, or is it going to be 100% renewable no matter what for the foreseeable future? No, look, we're, we're very focused on the renewables and the ESG side of things. Um, and, and it goes... It goes equally to you know institutional capital markets. You've you've got to be sustainable, right? If you want to raise money from an increasing number of capital pools today, then you've got to be behaving in a social um, socially acceptable manner. Um, but I think particularly for an industry like this, it's even more important given the scrutiny on the sector. And look, at one level, I can sit here and say. The only reason Bitcoin uses energy is because the market has attributed value to it. Like that is fact, right? If, if for, for any naysayers out there that say, oh, Bitcoin's a waste of energy, they say, well, Bitcoin, if Bitcoin is worthless, by definition, it will use no energy because no one will bother spending electricity to get a piece of a digital exponential pie every 10 minutes that's worth zero, right? So at the end of the day, energy demand 
it's driven by the market. Um, just like people choose to divert energy and use energy for other things, like you go out and instead of hanging your clothes on a, um, a clothesline, you'll elect to use a clothes dryer. Instead of playing a board game, you'll go and play the Xbox. They all use energy, right? And, you know, in New South Wales, where we are, that happens to be 75% coal-fired. But the reality is that Bitcoin, because it is a new technology, because not everyone understands it, and because it is a large consumer that's quite public, you do become subject to a lot more public um, exposure. So I think it's really important for us that we continue to stick to not just renewables, but we continue to making sure that every market we go into, we're solving problems, we're integrating with energy markets and communities. So in British Columbia, we're partnering with schools and universities. We've partnered with the local First Nations communities, announced a $500,000 grants program per annum there. We're looking at multiple ways to really cement into these markets um, because we recognise that what we're doing is new, it's innovative, um, you know, it is profitable for shareholders, but you've got to be giving back. And I'll let you go in a minute, but we've covered a lot about Bitcoin. What are some of the other real-world data applications that you guys may, may provide data to from these renewable sources down the track? It's a really good question. Um, and I think if you look at our platform, uh, there's no crypto or blockchain people in here. So you're touching on a really important thread, which is like we're all traditional energy infrastructure guys. And case in point, We've recently brought on board a new chair and CEO, David Bartholomew and Jason Conroy. Now, those two gentlemen um, built the listed Duet Group, um, a diversified energy and infrastructure business, grew up from like a $1 billion market cap to selling out the $13 billion to CKI up in Hong Kong four years ago. Um, look, I wouldn't want to put words in their mouth, but I'm not sure that they really knew what much about Bitcoin or what a Bitcoin was six months ago. Like fundamentally, we're building out a real asset platform, basically looking to monetize real assets, energy, data center infrastructure into this new world um, that we're approaching and we're already part of. And Bitcoin, this real world, digital world dislocation is everywhere, right? Like everything's going online. This mm. extraordinary demand for data centers and computing power all driven by these exponential digital demand drivers, right? Like we are all going online. And the inability of the real world to keep pace is real. But Bitcoin is the perfect manifestation of this because you've got an objectively priced commodity. You know, you can put your revenue line, your expense line, your gross profit scenarios, et cetera. But all these high-performance computing applications, so things like oil and gas reservoir analysis, data analytics, machine learning, they don't necessarily belong in these traditional capital city data centres where those data centres have been optimised for very different things. Lifetime cloud computing, computing, really low latency, high reliability, high security. A lot of these HPC applications just require raw computing power. So our hypothesis is mm. why not go and locate them close to the source of low-cost excess renewables and in fit-for-purpose facilities rather than these expensive capital cities with all data centres with all these bells and whistles they don't necessarily need. So that's been validated. We've signed MOUs, we've had multiple conversations with a lot of the big uh, tech companies. Reality is opportunity cost to date uh, when you've got Bitcoin mining um, generating these daily significant cash flows to bootstrap the platform has meant we've had to park it. But obviously, once we navigate the current capital market process we're looking at, um, we're certainly looking at diversifying into different verticals over time. And to some extent, fast forward five, 10 years, how we monetize that real asset base um, 
you know, could well be path dependent depending on how different markets emerge and evolve. And so data centres of the future, data centres won't all be the same, if you like. You'll have edge computing data centres for things like 5G technologies where latency is a big issue and autonomous vehicles, and that'll be a separate one. These sorts of data centres would be for complicating compute where latency wasn't an issue. Um, you might have next DC and the big ones in urban areas that banks or, or nearby um, nearby businesses would need to be close to for, for different reasons. Is that how you view the world, that data centres will be built for purpose more so than just a one-off, one-size-fits-all data centre that maybe we, we experience today? Yeah, spot on. And look, this has been a journey for us. And to some extent, we've stumbled into it. We came to the sector and the business because of Bitcoin, the asymmetric nature of that as an asset and the energy and infrastructure um, side of it with mining. But you're absolutely uh, right based on the conversations and the observations that we've made. Um, it is going to end up being more fit for purpose. And you've got to remember the, the data centre industry has experienced this extraordinary period of growth. They're trying to keep up. So, like, as you say, all these applications are just being co-mingled and thrown into the same facilities. But as that sector emerges, splitting them out into um, more appropriate facilities certainly seems to be where the world um, is trending. That's awesome, mate. Well, I know you're, you're very busy at the minute for um, a potential capital raising that you can't deny or confirm. Um, as, a, as a small shareholder, it's been a, a brilliant journey so far. And, um yeah, it's been great to watch and, and really appreciate your time to come and sit and explain what's a, a really exciting industry and, and hopefully some people who are learning about it for the first time got um, got something out of it. So thanks very much, mate. Thanks, Juddy. Thanks for having us, mate. Cheers. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.